Hi, welcome to Lambert Park Church. Our vision is life with God for the world. Our mission is to invite everyone to follow Jesus with us through redemptive community, intentional discipleship, and everyday mission. We're so glad you're here. Stay tuned for the podcast coming right up. Uh, It is our privilege to have Clark Shivey as our speaker today. Clark is the director of the Canadian chapter of Labrie. Uh, moved to the island from Bowen Island uh, about the time I came, came mm. down these ways around similar. Um, I got to know Clark at Regent College when we were in grad school together and shared our notes and uh, got to know each other. And yeah, uh, Labrie is a Christian study center around the world. Long before anyone was talking about deconstruction, people were wrestling with their faith, wrestling toward Jesus, wrestling in their faith with real questions. And Labrie has been a beautiful ministry since the 70s, founded by the Schaefers, Edith and Francis Schaefer, creating a safe place for people to come with their questions about God, about their own lives, about the world, and wrestle towards what it means to follow Jesus. And I love how Clark and his wife, Julia, have been leading that here in Canada, on the West Coast, and they have a beautiful ministry. Um, I'll hand it over to you and let you go. Okay, great, All thanks. Right. Oh, I will say one last thing. Yeah. I have given Clark permission to be a little longer than we're used to. It's not going to be two hours. But he's talking today about sexuality and shame. And the gravity of the topic uh, requires us to not rush past it. And I'm so thankful for what Clark's bringing today. I trust you will appreciate it. So we're just, he has, a, a, has 45 minutes is what he's got. So bring it. You just took up a minute, so... I really respect Scott. Um, I'm really thankful for him. I've uh, quietly watched what he's done. Um, no, I've known him as a person, but just to see his leadership and his love for you and his love for Jesus, it, it overflows his love for Jesus to you. So I'm very grateful to be invited here, grateful to be among all of you. Now, this is a very sensitive topic, and it's a uh, bold for Scott to invite me, so thank you for that trust. Um, But let's pray that God speaks to us, not just that I speak, but that the Lord speaks and that we are able to receive by His Spirit. So let's pray for that. Oh, Father, we are so thankful that you have created each of us and that you have not remained silent, but that you have declared your purposes from the beginning of time and have acted throughout history and have even come amongst us to declare your love and your truth and your healing and your promises and that you fulfill those promises. You've promised that you would uh, not forsake us, that you would continue to speak through your word and through your people by your spirit, and so we pray Father, speak to us, open our ears, open our hearts, that we might receive what you have to give us. In Jesus' name, amen. If we remain silent um, around issues around sexuality, particularly around issues of shame and guilt in relation to sexuality, people remain in the shadows. And churches are silent most often. Families don't want to talk about it. Society talks all around it. And celebrities and politicians dismiss it. 
Now at Labrie, I've heard countless stories. Labrie is the place where we welcome people into our home and they come to ask questions, honest questions. And so they may come as Christians. They may, not, they may uh, come as decidedly not Christian. And a lot of people are in the muddled middle, having lots of questions, trying to discern through um, if God is true to his word. Had a, um, a, a 53-year-old woman who came. She had been molested by her father at a young age. Because of her father's shame, she was sent to Catholic school where she was molested by the priest. And so she now has a sex addiction and hates herself for it. Had a young woman come, she had been molested by her brother. It was a homeschool family. Her brother repented and became a Christian, but she still struggles with alcohol, drugs, and abusive relationships. Men and women coming, struggling with pornography. I know that uh, Lambrick dealt with this issue um, a few years ago. Do you know that the highest percentage for divorce is around pornography? Around 60% of divorces are um, point to pornography as the reason, pornography addictions. There's also the shame of infertility, divorce, single people beyond the marriageable age, A single person is made to feel shame in church for having sexual desires and then feel shame in society for not acting upon them. There's a particular loneliness for those who identify as asexual or those who choose to remain celibate as a gay person. I've seen all these stories of people coming into Labrie and it's heartbreaking. I could tell you stories for hours and hours. Now, society says the best way to deal with sexual shame is to minimize it. It's just a biological exchange. It's nothing sacred. It's just no big deal. And yet, at the same time, society wants to minimize it by saying sexuality is the place where we'll find identity, fulfillment, and happiness. We speak in these contradictory ways. It's no big deal, and yet it is everything. And all the while, the church remains silent. But this is where the Christian and the church can speak the boldest. It surprises me that we don't hear more about it. Pastors hear the same stories that I do. It's a part of the pastor's work. Perhaps Christians or Christian pastors remain silent because these stories are sensitive and often within their own congregation. Perhaps they're afraid of how society will judge them and how they speak. Perhaps it's because of their own sexual sin. Perhaps it's all of these. For whatever reason, we as Christians, particularly in the church, cannot remain silent any longer. We keep people in the shadows of shame, pain, and addiction. We fail to develop practices in our churches to be a place of restoration and hope. So for those of you here or at home with your own story of sexuality and shame, I ask, is there hope? Yes, there is. The Bible speaks tremendously honest, honestly about sexuality and sexual dysfunction. It's so honest, in fact, that it makes us uncomfortable. 
But the Bible can be honest. It can go into those dark places because it has and points to a real hope. We may avoid difficult discussions because we do not know that there's hope in the darkness. But the Bible points us to the light of the gospel. It speaks of living waters washing us clean from inside and leading us into a journey of restoration and maturity. So today I just want to look at four areas of reflection. Uh, Creation, fall, gospel, and the new family of God. The new family made in Christ. So I want to look at the big story. I want the big story, and I, I want to do that because I want to reframe our sexual stories the stories that go around in our head, and have it reshaped by the biblical story. So the first is creation. And this is where sex is good. Sex is good. We must begin with creation because God says it's very good. When we hear of the damage and the shame sex has caused and we know it, we're afraid to speak about it. Yet it's where we're blessed. We're blessed by children. It's where we find emotional, relational, and spiritual blessings. Sexuality is a part of what God calls very good. It's not good for Adam to be alone. And in fact, when he sees Eve, he recites poetry. He sings a pop song. Jesus speaks of Adam and Eve's union created by God as a good thing, that what God put together let no one separate. Marriage is to unite two families, not just two people, but to unite two families and to enlarge that family by their own children. And as Adam and Eve see each other's naked bodies, they feel no shame. From the very beginning, sex includes unity, delight, solidarity, and security. God's very first command in the Bible, outside of let there be light, what's his first command? Have sex. Why? Because sex is to fill the earth so that it might be gardened well. The garden is not just so that you can get the turnips or the garlic. I guess everyone tries to grow garlic here. It works. But the garden represents cultural activities, architecture, music, society. Sex is the building block toward tending the garden. And that's why that's the first command. And so sex is not just a private consensual act, but a common good. Sex's purposes, sex, that's hard to say, sex's purposes are for the good of creation. Now, I'm a very private person. I, I, I get up in front of people and speak, but I'm a very private person. When I read, I often have my book laid down. I don't want people to ask about what I'm reading, and I'm, I'm quite private and modest about that. My wife is the opposite. She has stretched me as a person. And so we get on an airplane and we sit down and Julia, my wife, she pulls out the book that she wants to read and it's called Real Sex. I'm horrified. And she opens the book and then, ah, uh, she forgets. She, she has to get a pencil in her purse, which is going to take a good five minutes to find that pencil in her purse. But she goes, and as she leans down, I look over to see what she's reading, and the title of the chapter says, Communal Sex. 
And I look up and I see the man beside us. For a moment, our eyes fixed on one another. And we turn away in shame. Now, Lauren Winter, who wrote that book, Real Sex, that chapter is talking about the communal good that, um, that it's for society. It is for the common good. Uh, and so that's what it is. Sex is not just a private act, but something that affects us all. It affects all of society. You know, Lauren Winter also in that book talks about a woman who was taught sexual desire is bad. It's dirty, it's bad, you should restrain it, you should refrain it, you shouldn't have it. And she wanted to be faithful as a Christian in the church, and not until she was able to get married. And so when she got married, she was delighted. But it was when she went into the bedroom on honeymoon night, it was horrific. She couldn't separate herself from thinking sexual desire is something we should not have. And so their marriage struggled for years and years and years, trying to overcome that sense of shame around her desire. And so the church, by remaining silent on the goodness of sexuality, communicates a whole lot. Sex is perceived as dangerous and often bad. Yet, all the while, it's celebrated in society. And we get lots of advice in grocery stores. Yet, one, when one discovers that actually, you know, if they, have, they sleep with somebody and they say, oh, well, that, wasn't, that was actually great and I feel united and all these things, they might begin to think that the church is wrong. They feel that the church and the Bible produces a repressed people. Don't touch, don't handle. Or that it's just mere utility. You might think of Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. This is how people often think the church thinks of sexuality, and it's often what they do teach or they remain silent. But it's not just of utility, it's also of pleasure and of goodness. I mean, the Song of Songs <clears throat> speaks about lovers. One time I, I quoted, I was preaching from the Song of Songs and just reading the Bible, I see people start like having to like wipe the perspiration from their foreheads. The Bible loves sex and it is good. Desire is good. How might we as Christians recover language and descriptions of good sexuality? One that has society longing for the Christian view of sex. My second point, the fall. Sex is good, but sex is complicated. It's distorted. There's a good reason to be afraid of sex. So much damage has been done. As Adam and Eve turn away from God and turn to trust themselves, what is their first experience? Sexual shame. At that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. They sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Genesis 3. And not only do they cover themselves, they hide themselves in the trees and begin to blame themselves or blame each other. We need to be honest about this as well. Sex is a created good, something that the Bible declares as very good. Even after the fall, it hasn't lost its goodness. Let's remember that. Song of Songs is after the fall. Yet our sexuality is not the place where we can place our hope. 
because sin touches all aspects of our life and it touches our sexuality, which is one of the most intimate parts of our being. Since sex was good for creation, it also means its distortion is a distortion. um, Distortion around sexuality is a distortion for society. It will distort our hearts, our families, and the world around us. And the Bible speaks honestly about this. It's not an ostrich that sticks its head in the ground. In Genesis 19, we read of incest, when Lot's daughters sleep with their father in order to have children. One child out of that um, union was named Moab. I'll get to that later. In Genesis 34, we read of Dinah's rape and of her father Judah being negligent to pursue her justice and her brother's vengeance, but all the while she's left to the sides. In Genesis 38, we read of Tamar. Tamar, whose husband and next husband refused to give her the security she needed, not just emotional, physical security, but economic security. So a woman without the child did not have the same economic security. And so she had to dress as a prostitute to get her father-in-law to sleep with her to give her that economic security. So imagine that he would not sleep with this daughter-in-law, which was his um, obligation to provide for her in ancient culture, but he was willing to sleep with a prostitute. In Judges 19, we hear of a priest's concubine thrown out to a mob and sexually abused and left for dead. So not surprisingly, the biblical scholar Phyllis Tribble calls these the texts of terror. Most famously, we read of Bathsheba and David in 2 Samuel. David the king neglects to go to war, and when his hands are idle, he sees Bathsheba bathing. He uses his power to take this innocent woman from one of his loyal soldiers and uses her sexually. And then he uses his power to cover it up, to cover up his wickedness and to kill her beloved husband. God then has Bathsheba and David's wife that was conceived die. Yet at this point, it seems that David's problems end. He does get Bathsheba in the end. They do have a child, and that child is called Beloved. However, it's important to see that though David receives God's forgiveness, he will continue to suffer the consequences of his sexual sin. It divides his family and ultimately divides the nation. One of David's sons, Amnon, falls in love with his half-sister, Tamar, Absalom's sister. Amnon has Tamar cook for him, and then he rapes her and then tosses her out in his guilt and shame, and to her shame. Absalom will then kill Amnon because David will never give him justice, perhaps because of David's own complicated sexual history. Eventually, Absalom wages war against his father, and Absalom dies. Because of David's sexual sin, even though he was forgiven, suffered consequences and caused suffering for generations and family. There can be generational consequences in our family because of sexual sin in the past. So what are we to think of these stories? Why does the Bible hold to these stories, these dark stories of Tamar and Dinah and so on? I think there's two reasons why they're included. One, 
is because God is not silent. He gives voice to these women's stories or to these stories of people who have been assaulted. Phyllis Tribble once gave a lecture on these texts of terror about the rape, and a woman came up to her in tears and in amazement. And she said, I didn't know that the Bible was also for my story. So when we don't speak of it, people stay in the shadows. We need to tell the whole word of the Bible. Otherwise, they remain in the margins. One of the greatest sins of the Catholic Church, and and many churches, just just most commonly known, is not just the um, sexual sin, but the silence around it and how people and families suffered because of the silence. And so I think of the Old Testament as a Me Too record. The second reason, not just that God wants to give voice, but God is angry. God wants to express his anger at these stories. Sometimes uh, victims are told that God is teaching somebody a horrible act because of something that they've done, that they, that they have led themselves to have been attacked, that they've worn clothes or something like this, that, that they put themselves in precarious positions uh, and, uh, or uh, situations. Now, there may be times when people have been foolish, but never, it never means that they have deserved such a thing. Bathsheba and her husband Uriah were happy and honorable. Most of these women suffer not because of what they have done, but because of what culture has become, something depraved. In most of these stories, we hear of men who act wickedly toward these women. And when we hear of the other men, they often neglect justice for these women. So they may be ancient stories, but these are present realities for us today. God sees. God hears. Over and over again, we hear of these acts being reprehensible to God. And so we cannot remain silent anymore. We cannot leave people in the shadows, nursing their own grief, nursing thoughts of self-hatred. So what hope might we have? What hope does the word of God give us? What word of hope might we speak into the honest betrayal of sexual sin in our own lives or in our families or in society? And that brings me to my third point. Sex is good, sex is distorted, but the gospel, sex is restored. We are restored. It's interesting, the very first thing that we get in the New Testament is a genealogy. Now, we often don't think of genealogy as the place to find hope for sexual sin and shame, but that's exactly where the New Testament begins, Matthew's genealogy. Now, we often don't look close at the genealogy, but why is Matthew starting with the genealogy? Well, he wants people to know that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, if Jesus is the Messiah, he needs to have a good pedigree. What, is he in the line of David? Oh, line of Abraham, you know, pretty high. Yet Matthew includes several women, and at that, unrespectable women. Women that we want to forget are in our family line. It includes Tamar, the woman who had to pretend to be a prostitute to um, sleep with her father-in-law. It includes Rahab, a Canaanite prostitute. It, It also includes Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. And of course, Mary, whom Joseph had first thought had been adulterous. 
Jesus does not enter into a pure family line. So why does Matthew emphasize this genealogy? Again, I want to give you two quick reasons. One, Jesus has not distanced himself from our sexual dysfunction and shame. Instead, he enters into its very history. From the very beginning, as soon as Adam and Eve uh, recognize their own shame, God promises through their seed, through the sexual act, that he would bring about his promises and good purposes for creation and humanity. Isn't that amazing? In the midst of their sexual shame, in the very act, God's going to bring about his promise. So I think that's one reason. The second one is that Matthew is like, you want him to have good pedigree, but just so you know, there is no one righteous, not even one, only Jesus. And so we see the same point being brought up in John 8. The Jewish lawyers bring the adulterous woman, a woman caught in adultery, to Jesus and says, well, what should we do? The law of Moses says that we should stone her. And the lawyers ask, what, what should we do? And Jesus says, well, the one who um, has not sinned can throw the first stone. They all eventually walk away because none, they all know that none are without guilt. None of us are without guilt. This story does not end in some kind of open-ended love ethic. If we are all guilty, then that means none of us should judge another, uh, another's or anyone's sexual life. Um, <clears throat> uh, but Jesus is not a moral relativist. Jesus remains within the traditional biblical sexual ethic. But Jesus tells the woman he does not condemn her, but he wants her to go and sin no more. His forgiveness is not meant to blanket over her sin, but to free her not to sin. Or consider the story of Luke 7. Now, there's many stories I could go into, but you'll see that almost every time Jesus encounters a woman, it is around this area of sexual dysfunction and shame. It's, it's the counterpart to the Me Too document of the Old Testament, that Jesus is encountering women and men and rewriting the narrative. But you have this sinful woman who comes to Simon's house and who wants to anoint Jesus' feet. And so Simon has invited her to this public feast. Now, it may sound strange. We're very privatized in our culture. We don't welcome strangers into our home. How did this woman get into this guy's house? But it's really, it's like a public house. And this guy, and so what the Pharisees would do, would have these, especially if you're wealthy, you would have these big public banquets. You would honor, you would bring someone who's honorable. He's bringing Jesus, Jesus this rabbi, and the poor would sit along the walls. But she comes in and she can't restrain herself. She sees Jesus and she runs up to him. She starts weeping. He's the one who frees me. And she starts weeping. And so she untangles her hair. Now, you need to know that when someone untangled their hair, it was a sexual gesture. It's not just being messy. But she weeps and the feet, she weeps on his feet and starts washing his feet with her hair. And she's just crying in love with Jesus. And of course, Simon looks at this and says, this is very shameful. This person, this woman who has come with no shame because she knows Jesus does not shame her, but she has to come into the midst of a place where everyone else wants to shame her. And so she's doing it and Simon's judging her and, and Peter, I mean, Jesus says, so 
Let me tell you a story, Simon. There's two people with debts, one greater, one lesser. The master forgives both. Who loved the master more? And so Simon says, well, I suppose the one with the greater debt. And Jesus says, you're right. That the one who knows that they have been forgiven much, the one who holds on to the shame but know that Jesus relieves them from their shame, do not care what other people think. They can let their burdens down and rejoice because Jesus accepts me. But those who feel that they do not need to be forgiven much do not love much. True forgiveness leads us to love others well. The deeper we understand God's forgiveness, the deeper we long to love others. And in your greatest shame, those of you here with great shame, and you're holding it together, Jesus has um, offered you forgiveness, total forgiveness. And often that forgiveness leads us to be a voice to others lost in that same shame. I want, us, I want you to hear that. Often the forgiveness where we feel our deepest weakness leads us to be a voice to those lost in that same shame. So let me get to the fourth reflection. Sex is good, sex is distorted, but sex is restored through Jesus. And it's the beginning of maturity and it's the beginning of the family of God. So the church, the family of God. So Jesus came into the midst of our sexual shame and into our dysfunctional family history in order to renew our hearts through forgiveness. But he also came to restore us as a new family. One centered on the power of Christ in the gospel. We see this re uh, social reconstitution immediately at work in Jesus. You know when Jesus says, hey, you know, Mary and your brothers are here. And he goes, who is my mother and my brothers? Those who do the Father's will are my brothers and my sisters. And my mother, my brothers. To understand the radical nature of Jesus' message and fulfillment in the early church we need to understand better the Greco-Roman culture. Uh, Kyle Harper, not a Christian as far as I know, wrote a book called From Shame to Sin. He debunks the myth that Christianity was a force that perpetuated social norms, such as patriarchy, and the rejection of body and rejection of its desires. But rather, the early church revolutionized the way we see society, particularly in the areas of sexuality against male dominance, and against the denigration of bodies. Christians need to pay close attention to how radical the early church was. In ancient cultures, a person was seen as fated by the gods to be free or a slave. The freeborn had dignity, the slave did not. As a result, the slaves were often sold for sexual purposes, not just manual labor, but they would be used for sex and then once they had no use for them, they would be put into the fields. And slaves were seen as furniture. They had no rights. These slaves were young girls and young boys stolen from other countries and were used sexually. They, had, they were property. They were unseen. Worse than slaves were prostitutes because even prostitutes could be used by slaves and they were as cheap as a loaf of bread. They had very hard lives and their lives were often brutal and short. While the freeborn masters could use their slaves 
Freeborn men and slaves could use and abuse prostitutes. That's how fate shaped society. It was not a society sexually free in which the early church ended up repressing. This is what Carl Harper wants to debunk. The early church spoke of every person bearing dignity and responsibility for themselves, even the slave, even the prostitute. They all were equal. And this was a radical claim, and it spoke against the gods of the day that Paul would say, neither slave nor free. All are equal in Christ. I don't think we can even possibly imagine how radical that claim was. Some think of Paul as being prudish and judgmental, but nothing could be further from the truth. The early church were welcoming in slaves and prostitutes as one of them, as well as the freeborn men who had been using these people. He says that the debauched practices of the Greco-Roman society were not the marks of the new family in Christ. In the church, they were invited into a radically new constitution, a radical new society that Christ has established. They are welcomed into God's family because of what Jesus had done. You were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. As a result, they were called into greater freedom, not to be forgiven, to return to the social practices around them, but, um, and not to leave the sexual system around them unchanged. And so Paul speaks about this responsibility Christians are to have toward their own bodies and toward the bodies of others. This radical reconstitution, this proclamation and demonstration of the gospel helped who the most? Women. It helped women the most. We see this in two areas where women were particularly cared for in the early church, and this was radical, monogamy and celibacy. Women could be easily divorced and discarded. They could be divorced for spoiling dinner or becoming ugly. Jesus says no. Paul says no. Women are to be honored and held as bearing equal dignity to men. Men could just easily divorce their wives, but wives were stuck with whatever the men decided. But not so in the church. Monogamy was not meant to be repressive, but committing the men to the relationship and freeing the women to have that security in the ancient culture. It was for the welfare of their lives and the welfare of their children's lives. Paul even spoke of mutual consent. Do you know that the average age of the the man marrying a girl in the ancient Greek culture was 28-year-old man with a 14-year-old girl? The whole idea of marriage being of the same age is a early church construction. Consider that. The other promotion of women's dignity was celibacy. This is, um, celibacy was promoting their own dignity, their own freedom. In Greco-Roman culture, women were only considered valuable by the children they produced. If a woman could not have a child, she was not valuable in society. Furthermore, the woman was expected to worship her father's or her husband's gods. And yet the early Christian church spoke of a woman's freedom to come before God on her own without the need of any male intercessory and without the need to produce children to show her value. 
It was honorable to be celibate for the sake of the kingdom of God. And in speaking about celibacy, I want to tell the story about eunuchs. Now, eunuchs is not a word that we often use, uh, but they were these men who would be castrated and given care of finances and um, and in care of harems. Uh, They didn't want them to have any kind of power. But in Acts 8, we see this interesting story where the Ethiopian eunuch is coming to Jerusalem for the Passover. He has somehow become a Jewish convert. He has an expensive scroll of Isaiah, and he gets to to Jerusalem, but he can't come into the temple. He travels all the way from Ethiopia to Jerusalem, but can't go into the temple because the law prohibits him to go into the temple. Well, after Passover, he starts going on his chariot back home. And the Spirit leads Philip and plops him right down where the Ethiopian eunuch is traveling, and he's reading aloud, and Philip runs up to him and wants to ask him what he's reading. Now, I want you to understand how unusual this is because the eunuchs were considered freaks. They were considered monstrosities in the Greco-Roman culture. They were useful, but they were monstrosities. Because when the men were castrated, they wouldn't be able to grow beards and their voices got squeaky. They were not gender normal. You see what I mean? And so because of that, the laws had lots of laws about how they could not come into the temple. But the Holy Spirit takes Philip and plops him down to this Ethiopian eunuch who's reading Isaiah. And So the eunuch is rejected by the church. He's rejected by society. And um, let me find out where I am. Okay. So Philip says, do you know what you're reading? And the eunuch says, no. But then he asks this very curious question. He wonders if the prophet is speaking of himself or someone else. That's an unusual question. Certainly, this eunuch would have identified with this prophet one who was rejected by society, cut off from their descendants. Let me find this passage. This might give me one more minute. The passage he was reading said, like a sheep he was led to slaughter and like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth? Now, the reason that the eunuch is wondering about if it's the prophet asking this question, well, just listen to the language. A shear, a shear cuts something off and that because of that, their life in society is cut off. And so the eunuch is asking, is this prophet like me? And Philip's like, No, no, this is about Jesus. Jesus was cut off from his life um, or cut from the people. And yet as a result, it offered the forgiveness of the world and brings everyone in. And so the eunuch is so surprised and says, well, then there's no reason for me not to be baptized. Now think about that as well. He just went to Jerusalem trying to get into the temple, but he's denied. But he's saying, if Jesus did this and what you're saying is true, 
there's no reason for me not to be able to go all the way in. If I get baptized now, I can go all the way into the new family. There's no barrier for me to become a new creature in Christ. And he goes away rejoicing. And probably just a couple of paragraphs after that, he probably rejoices reading these words, do not let the eunuchs say, I am a dried up tree with no children and no future. For this is what the Lord says, I will bless those eunuchs who keep my Sabbath days holy and who choose to do what pleases me and commit their lives to me. I will give them within the walls of my house a memorial and a name far greater than sons and daughters could give. What this eunuch has experienced is the blessing and the forgiveness and the abundance of the gospel. That though he has been cut off from society, though he's been cut off from the church, Jesus says, come in. I will give you many sons and daughters through the Spirit. And so both monogamy and celibacy were these, um, and, uh, were these great marks of the early Christian church. It honored women, it honored male eunuchs, and it called all people through repentance to become new family in Christ. And so in seeing that the early church welcomed and honored uh, these people, these diverse people, we should repent in our own failures as churches and as Christians to welcome those who do not follow into the pattern of, the, um, of a typical sexual life. We fail to welcome people as full partners in the gospel of Christ. One of the most common refrains that I get at Libri is that single people often do not have any place in the Christian church. So how are we giving the gospel to those without children? My wife and I suffered through infertility for seven years, and we felt that marginalization. What about the divorced? What about the former prostitute? The abused as well as the abuser? The orphan? The eunuch, the one who wore shame on his very body. No longer a freak or monstrosity, but called a child and beloved by God. And so all are called to be incorporated into the family where any claim, our only claim, is through the free grace of Christ. So how are we in the church to be a place of welcome, honesty, repentance, forgiveness, and discipleship? So this is where I want to end. So I've spoken about in creation, sex is good. God has meant it for good, and yet it's dangerous and distorted because of the fall. And yet through Jesus, the kindness of Jesus, we are restored. And that we are called, all those who are weary and thirsty can come to Jesus, and he will give us rest and a new family. And so on one hand, I want those of you who struggle with shame over your sexual narratives for whatever reason to know that there is real hope in the name of Jesus and in the people of God, not as a symbol, not as a religious philosophy, but as a transformative relationship with the personal God. And on the other hand, I want to call the church. Um, Scott asked me to come here. I call you. I call everyone who hears this in the church, if you call yourself a Christian, to consider how we practice life together as a new family. If we are to heal and, um, and be healed and be restored in our sexual narratives, to come into maturity of all that God calls us to in our sexual lives, that the church and Christians and I must understand the full call of what it means to be a people together as a family in Christ.
I'm going to end there.